an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. I have a special update for you. I guess this is technically episode 47, but I very quickly got Greta Vosper on the phone earlier today so that we could hear directly from her the latest news about what's happening with her and the United Church of Canada and her congregation in the suburbs of Toronto called West Hill. And uh, she very graciously set aside about a half an hour of her time to uh, give me the update. So here it is. And uh, I hope that you appreciate hearing directly from Greta. You can uh, check out her website and contact her directly and offer her your encouragement on her on her website. And I will leave the link to that in the show notes. I'll also include a link to the news story that I referred to in this episode in the Toronto Star from Sunday, September 11th. It's a great story, and Greta's doing remarkable work and really weathering this storm better, I think, than I would. And um, she's just a, a very sacrificial uh, person who cares very deeply about her congregation as well as the values that uh, she and they are working to promulgate in, in their community. Greta was first on the Life After God podcast in episode two, back in August of 2015. So if you have not heard her story, and this is maybe the first time you're hearing about her, or you're not quite familiar with all of the uh, the issues at stake, I would highly recommend going back and listening to episode two. It still remains one of our most popular episodes on the podcast. Uh, Greta's doing some really unique things. People easily misunderstand what she's up to uh, and say quite glib things about how a pastor could not believe in God and so forth. So it's really important that you understand the context of what she's doing in Toronto at her congregation, uh, which she's been at for decades, and why she continues to stand her ground in this struggle with the United Church of Canada. This special edition of the Life After God podcast goes out to Greta and the West Hill congregation as they continue to fight the good fight, as it were. Greta, thank you so much for coming back on the Life After God podcast today under slightly different circumstances than the last time we spoke. Yes, uh, this is the conversation that I had hoped I'd get to avoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. We record. You were the first uh, interview that I did. Uh, it was actually the second episode because the first episode was just me saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Um, but you were the first like full-fledged episode of the podcast just over a year ago. And it's been uh, all that time since we've been going through this process, watching what you've been up to and dealing with. And uh, just last week, there was some news um, that the denomination had made a decision about your suitability. Can you tell us just a little bit about um, how that how that transpired? 
Yeah, uh, the denomination has been reviewing me for my effectiveness uh, based on a new sort of um, a new definition of effectiveness set out by the general secretary, wherein she said that you can't be effective if you're not suitable and you can't be suitable if you can't answer the questions of ordination uh, affirmatively. So the process has been set up to ask me those questions. And I had an interview at the end of June when I responded to those questions to a committee of 24 people. Um, and uh, they remained behind to make a decision as to my suitability and then took the summer to write that decision up. And on Thursday morning, they shared it with me electronically. And the decision is that I am, or their finding is that I am not suitable for ministry in the United Church of Canada because I was clear that um, I do not believe in a theistic God. I do not believe in a in a Trinitarian God. I don't believe that Jesus was the divine and exclusive son of God. I don't believe that there is a Holy Spirit. So, I mean, I was very clear. I would say, if this is what you mean by that word, then no, I don't believe that. And these are the things I do believe in. Anyway, so I've been found unsuitable. In the in the intervening months between June and last Thursday, did they give you any indication of what their decision was, or were you just waiting? No, I was just waiting. And in fact, on Thursday, um, I was about to start um, my yoga practice, and I had gone to my computer to turn on the the um, the guided meditation that does that that I do that with, and noted that it was there, but I didn't. Um, I didn't read it at that point in time. I read it, you know, after I'd done my yoga and my husband and I were able to be together, printed it off and read it. Um, and then realized that he had sent another email. Uh, the secretary, executive secretary of the conference had sent two emails. One was with the recommendations and the other was about the format of the meeting I am going to on Thursday at which I'm invited to respond to the recommendations. Um, and he noted in that that he had that it was posted to the web portal so that the people who will be at that meeting will be able to read the recommendations beforehand. To my understanding, that's the first time that the review of the effectiveness of a minister has ever been made public. And it was made public um, before we had an opportunity to let our congregation know. So some members of my congregation found out um, through the media. We immediately sent out an email to people. I posted it to my Facebook page so that they would find out about it from a post from me, not from somewhere else. Um, and we started our phone tree. And some members did find out about it. Um, they were out and about and they would see a video feed uh, from a news uh, service here in the city and and saw it going across the ticker tape at the bottom of the screen. So it was very disturbing the manner in which we were advised. We had not been advised at all that it would be made public um, at that in that way. Wow. Yeah, that's just I mean, it it seems consistent with the way that they have approached this whole process. I mean, I remember a year ago when we talked about uh, what was going on at that time, that, you know, you hadn't even had a chance to respond to the accusations and your congregation hadn't had a chance to uh, share their views about your, I mean, if they're going to review your effectiveness and your suitability, I mean, who better to weigh in on that uh, than your, your own congregation that sees you every single week, in some cases, probably every day. Um, and, and they didn't, they didn't seek that out at all. It seems like. No, they didn't at all. My congregation throughout the process both um, 
me and my congregation have tried to engage uh, with the conference, which is reviewing us. We did, uh, the congregation was successful in having four members of our presbytery, the congregational health team, uh, come to the church to have a conversation uh, in May. And that was, that was a good thing, but we had to reach out and, and have that happen. Um, so the congregation has had no input whatsoever because this is this different kind of effectiveness review. It's about theology. So what on earth would they know about theology, right? Or at least that's the assumption. So, which is not true. I mean, I have an extremely erudite congregation and many of them are well versed in theology. Sure, of course. However, uh, the meeting, the meeting that's going to happen on Thursday uh, is a sub-executive meeting, which means there may be up to eight people, I think, uh, who will be making a decision. And they have told us that um, I have 30 minutes uh, to which, or which I am given to respond to the report. And my congregation has been invited to speak for 15 minutes. <laughs> and at this stage in the game, and a year and a half after the process was launched, to provide 15 minutes seems um, very late, and it does not it does not suggest to me that it is at all an inclusive thing. It suggests to me that it, it is in reaction to uh, my and their expressed concerns about being repeatedly refused access to the process. And I think that they, that the conference is, is trying to make up for that at this point in time. So they don't seem, you know, so draconian, but I, I think that, that this is too late. Yeah. It seems like the decision's already been made. I mean, what kind of input is, what kind of input would change their mind at this point? Well, David Allen has gone to the media and said that, um, you know, based on what the congregation says in their 15 minutes or I in my 30 minutes, that that could completely turn this all around. I find that problematic. Um, a year and a half worth is a of work of a, could be turned around? Yes. Turn around in 45 minutes. Right. Oh yeah. Goodness. Right. So, and, and quite frankly, I don't know what else I would say to them. I mean, I have been clear. I have been honest. I have been passionate. I have been respectful, I think. And I don't know that there's anything more I could say to them that would change their minds. Um, and I don't know that what the congregation has to say to them at this point, A, could possibly be represented within 15 minutes and could possibly have any impact on them. Part of the issue is that if I'm recommended, or if I'm set, if I'm said to be suitable, I have to be recommended to be placed on the discontinued service list. So their hands are kind of tied anyway. Um, so I don't know why he said that. Yeah, that just seems pandering a little bit, maybe to the media who is kind of uh, putting the heat on them to say it's not finished yet. Yeah, I, I think. I, yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I mean, it's certainly possible. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know why someone would be saying at this point in time, we don't know what the outcome would be when clearly the ruling that they asked for, that they received, has essentially said what the ruling has to be. You have to you have to do these things. And, and some of them are, uh, they could ask me to do some remedial program, but the committee recommended that they not try to do that because they figure I'm beyond remediation. And actually, in terms of my theology, I certainly am. Right, right. Um, <laughs> unapologetically. You're unsavable, um, Greta. And the other one is that I'm unsavable. And the other is that um, they, 
they um, have the formal hearing to put me on the discontinued service list. But they, the issues here, Ryan, are are so much broader than what the the process is. I mean, the process sucks. It's been it's been degrading. It's been um, rude. It's been it's been you know terrible to my congregation, disrespectful and, and, and offensive to them. Totally disrespectful. But the but the bigger question is, what on earth does this say when the most progressive denomination in the world, as far as I'm concerned? has drawn a line in the theological sand and said, you know, here, here's as far as we're going to go. We're not going any further. What does that say? Not just for that denomination, but for all Protestant denominations, right? Like we're retrenching. And, and I mean, I, I've, the hardest part on Thursday was coming to terms with the fact that, that this progressive liberal denomination is no longer a progressive liberal denomination that it's that it's changed. I, I feel like it's betrayed me. It can only be progressive as long as it progresses, right? The minute it stops progressing, it's no longer progressive. I mean, that's that's kind of the definition. Well, that's a very good point, Ryan. Because back in two thousand and nine, when I had people writing me emails telling me they were going to come out to their congregations, I was very concerned for their security within the United Church of Canada. So I went to Church House and met with two staff people at Church House, and said, you know, we need to create some way that clergy can work with their congregations to bring them up to speed theologically, to bring them up to speed with what we're taught, you know, what the United Church is teaching at theological colleges and what clergy know, you know, like how can we do that and protect them so they're not, their congregations aren't going to be angry and upset and toss them out. We need to you know, channel resources to them. And I was thinking of the term tenure at the time, which was totally inappropriate, but that was what was in my head. And one of them said to me in in the course of the conversation, but we don't know if the United Church really wants to move in a progressive direction. And you know what? I had no idea what that meant because (laughs) I have never known the United Church to be anything but progressive. So to suggest that it had it hadn't decided whether or not it wanted to be progressive was very troubling and then the rest of the conversation went in a direction which made it clear that it was not going to go in a progressive direction it was actually going to move uh, to a more conservative theology in order to tr- attract what it thought was going to be the growing religious base in the country it does seem you know if i'm trying to channel their concerns a little bit and just play devil's advocate that you know god <laughs> that big idea is sort of the last straw in sort of a handful of theological straws. Like you can let go of some other fantastical claims like the resurrection, the virgin birth, um, you know, the historicity of like everything Jesus said um, and all of that. But when there is this kind of scary line, it seems like that if you let go of God, then you cease to be a church altogether um, but you've you've spent quite a bit of time over the last, I don't know, five or more, 10 years basically saying, no, no, this, there's much more to being a church than beliefs. In fact, that's not even the main thing. How do you, uh, I know we only have right. a brief time, but how do you, how do you encapsulate that? And I mean, I, I'm sure there's a part of you that can understand how church leaders would be like, oh my gosh, if we let go of God, that's the last thing. And then we're nothing. Uh, how do you respond to that? 
Well, it's not God that we're letting go of. I mean, when you use the word God um, outside of the church, particularly outside of, um, well, outside of the church anywhere, people think that you're talking about a being that lives in the sky who, you know, we send up prayers to, and sometimes he sends down results. And in, in the liberal mainline Protestant denominations, they haven't taught that for 50 or 60 years. They've invited you to wrestle with the concept of God. So many clergy have panentheistic understandings of God as sort of within um, creation and beyond, right? Mm -hmm, So very esoteric, metaphorical understandings of something that, you know, doesn't really have any way to intervene, but is there nonetheless. Some people have um, very complex process theologies, which create, you know, end up generally in the same sort of panentheistic state. But but there's no real sense in a liberal church. There's There hasn't been for many decades in the United Church of Canada a very strong belief at all or a large percentage of people who believe in a theistic, supernatural, interventionist God. So the word God has been used to stretch over all kinds of understandings from the understanding of God, as Gene Hamill said in the article in the Toronto Star, God, I spell God L-O-V-E. Right. You know, like that people, people Nobody have used would God to mean all kinds of things. No one would balk at that in the United Church regularly before. But now we have a more conservative element. We've shifted in 2009. They were telling me what was happening to the boat. It was turning around. And it has turned around. And so we now have a very, we have a very conservative faction called Cruxifusion, which is a savvy, media savvy, very conservative group. Um, And I, and I think that we're at risk of, of perhaps losing some of the major advances that the United Church was really proud of and, and very forward thinking on because, you know, when you're using language, which is owned by the conservatives, you know, and the conservatives then take the helm. You need you you become judged by that language, and that's exactly what's happened here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is um, predictable. I mean, I've seen this kind of thing on a much more conservative. The scale is different. So my experience was similar to yours, but the denomination never pretended to be as liberal as yours. Um, but the same kind of within a sort of scale same kind of thing happened. I was so delighted yesterday in the the Sunday Toronto Star to read this headline, Flock Sticks with Atheist United Church Minister, and a beautiful Mm. story uh, about how your congregation has responded to the news that you're unsuitable. Um, Does this mean that you're going to be able to more or less continue your ministry with your church? Uh, You may not get to keep the building, et cetera, et cetera, but but do you feel like there's a way forward for you to keep working with the same congregation? Absolutely. I mean, we we have um, talked about how whatever happens, we will make it amazing, right? We will make it amazing because I am. They are. They are so important. I am so impressed with who they are. And I think I said to you before, Ryan, that this story is really not about me. Yeah. This story is about a congregation that let me be me, right? And mm. and all the other congregations in the United Church of Canada haven't given their clergy permission to do that, right? So so this congregation is the important element here, and they need to be able to continue to do the work of what I call sharing the off-label benefits of religion. The 
creating community, offering uh, love and support and care to one another, being present to each other in times of joy and celebration and in times of bitter uh, despair and loss and and convicting one another when we when we don't live up to our ideals like they do all those things that go toward creating a values-based life and you know i think one of the greatest problems that has happened with the demise of the liberal church is that you know we had a huge mitigating um impact on the social fabric of communities. And we have abdicated that responsibility um, and not nurtured the spiritual core of new generations because we haven't, we haven't served the people who no longer want to believe in that father God in the sky, right? So, so now you have a relativistic libertarian group fighting with a fundamentalist religious groups for for the the moral center of our communities and it's only communities like west hill and oasis communities like those that that west hill is building uh, and that are beginning to gather in the states and other you know ethical humanist communities and things like that that are calling people to live according to their values those are the communities that are going to work toward mitigating some of the harm that those other perspectives can have in society and so West Hill will find a way to be West Hill, and I, and I will find a way to continue to nurture them um, if and as they want me to. That's, and, yeah. that's the bottom line. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. that's incredible, and I wish that had been possible for me, and I know many other... And so do I, and so many others, yeah. Yeah, so many other clergy, you know, and I so I think this is, uh, in, in a long sort of discouraging story, this is a, a bright spot uh, where your congregation, which of course and I remember it well, what your congregation values is much more important than what your denominational leaders, who you rarely see and have much less in common with, uh, what they what they particularly think. The, the real losers in all this is going to be the United Church of Canada. I think it was set up for the United Church of Canada to be a loser either way when, when this, you know, when concerns were raised in the conference, rather than saying, well, why don't we send somebody to go and talk to people at West Hill and see what's up? Right, right, right. And chose instead to have an adversarial process, you know, like, and that, I mean, our procedures suggest that they do that. So, you know, <laughs> they should have done that, <laughs> but, uh, but they chose not to. So they set it up as an adversarial process. And from that moment on, you know, if I had been allowed to stay, people would be furious and upset and leave the church. And if I ha- am forced to leave, people will be upset and furious and leave the church. I mean, they set it up that way. Um, six or eight people in a room. I mean, it wasn't a wise choice. There's this beautiful story that opens the Toronto Star piece from yesterday. Uh, and I just wanted to read this this statement uh, because it's it's a great bit of journalism in the sense that they began the article with this, this story, I think. Uh, it says, Gene Hamill has been a member of the United Church since its formation in Toronto 91 years ago. Today, as a longtime member of the West Hill United Church congregation in Scarborough, Hamill, 96, knows where her loyalties lie. Hamill is sticking with Greta Vosper, the United Church minister who was told by church leaders that she is, quote, not suitable because she calls herself an atheist and preaches about love without referring to Jesus Christ. Quote, wherever Greta goes, I go, said Hamill after the Sunday morning service. My heart left the United Church when I heard they had rejected Greta. I was stunned. Uh, To me, that epitomizes the losses, you know, that the United Church is going to sustain. I mean, if a 96-year-old lifelong 
member of the church uh, is done, then that's that's kind of a bellwether, I think. It's huge. And it's deeply sad. I mean, the loss and the grief that will be involved here is immeasurable. Um, that's I mean, a good I point. Felt it it's, on Thursday. It, yeah. it's not something to celebrate. You know, it's it, this is a really a loss for no. everyone. And, and it's a loss of ideals that, that we've held about the United Church, um, many of us all our lives. I mean, I've been in the United Church all my life, but, you know, the United Church has never existed without Jean Hamill. Yeah. It's never, there's never been a United Church without her. And there will be similar stories like that, I think, across the country of people whose whole lives have been lived in and devoted to the United Church. And they will feel that their United Church um, has betrayed them as I feel it has betrayed me. I was going to ask you, do you think this is the beginning of more such uh, crises in local congregations around Canada? Yes, absolutely. I've heard um, from a couple of congregations already that uh, this past Sunday they were um, there were lots of expressions of concern and support and a desire to know what they can do to make their their feelings and their ire known to the United Church. One of my colleagues um, who was out of the country uh, with another colleague uh, when the news came down, um, both of them simply wept. They didn't believe that their United Church would do this. Um, so I think there will be a considerable um, wave of despair go across the denomination, and then there will be action related to that despair. Yeah. Well, we'll have to just, I guess, wait and see. I mean, the difference in my case was, I th- I don't think anyone was surprised that the church would... Um, you know, find me unsuitable for ministry because I was clearly outside of their conservative theological frame. But as you said, that the United Church of Canada, like some more progressive denominations in the United States, but there's really nothing quite like the United Church of Canada here, no. um, has always been a leader in terms of progressive scholarship. And as you say so clearly in, in your book, With or Without God, that there has been this... Uh, the crisis has been growing sort of like a wave. Uh, you know, you can sort of see it building in the horizon as there's been this growing separation between what clergy are taught in seminary and, and, mm-hmm. and Bible college and what um, clergy are allowed or expected to tell their members in the pews. And uh, and you simply came to the place with your congregation where you together agreed that you didn't want there to be this this division anymore that whatever you believed about the Bible, that you were free to share it with the congregation and together you would decide what to do, which seems perfectly rational to me. Yeah. Well, and it's even more than that, Ryan, because, because lots of clergy have those conversations with their congregants and they do studies on, you know, Wednesday night and Saturday morning and they explore the Bible and they come to the, I mean, members come to the accept the fact that the Bible was written by humans for humans with very human foibles and very human interests at its core. And, and, and they move on with that. Right. Right. And, but they continue to reverence that book because that's the only book they read from. Mm. They continue to speak exclusively to the stories in that book. They continued like they, they may go far beyond a traditional understanding of God, but they still use the word God. They still talk about salvation and resurrection so that, 
So they've taken the chasm that once existed between the pulpit and the pew and they've transferred it to outside the building. So they've built this, they've dug a moat around the building. And I've said this over and again, yeah. you know, you, you can't create a club inside that has a, has a secret language and a secret understanding of the terms that you're using and expect people to come in and, and assume they know what the heck you're talking about. Right. So if yeah. you're not talking about a supernatural interventionist God, but you use that word, someone else from the community comes in because they they've fallen into the space because their lives are falling apart. And all they hear talk about is this God, which hasn't answered any of their prayers. Then they're not going to stay there. It doesn't matter what your understanding of that God is. It doesn't matter how compassionate or empathic you are. If you're using language that excludes someone's worldview, they're not going to warp their worldview just so they can sit in your pews. Yeah, it's it becomes an exclusive club or like um, you know, a historical society that sort of exists to keep yeah. alive the memory of something. Yeah, you've got this special little handshake and if people don't know the handshake, then they're not admitted and they feel stupid. Has this been uh any more or less exhausting the past couple of weeks than it has been the last year for you? Uh, <laughs> it's been exhausting, that's for sure. Um, I'm I'm hoping that there will be some action taken on Thursday that actually gives us some clarity. Um, and if you know, I'm I'm not I'm not really looking forward to a formal review, which could extend over the next many months with a predetermined outcome. Um, I don't see the point in that, um, but it may be a necessary step. So uh, we just have, I mean, we have to see what their interpretation of the, of the ruling is and whether they feel that that step is imperative or not. Yeah. When you said a moment ago in our conversation that there could be this next set of review processes, I, something in my stomach just tightened and I just thought, ugh. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I would hate that now. I mean, now I do know how you feel about it because you just said so, but I, I just, that the idea of, yet another protracted process. And as you said, with already a more or less predetermined outcome, it uh, just seems so mm-hmm. not only pointless, but, but it's kind of um, cruel in a way for you and the congregation. Well, it's a huge waste of resources. I mean, two years ago, I started a process of creating resources for clergy who wanted to, you know, lead post theistic services or move in that direction. And that got completely hijacked by the review. And so now I'm, you know, trying to get this, the, the, another year up and running because it's lectionary based. And, the, you know, I, it's, I'm constantly hijacked. West Hill's 65th anniversary was completely hijacked, right? We didn't get half of the things done we wanted to do. The resources, personal resources, um, human resources, financial resources that have gone into this on both sides. You know, my legal fees have been crazy and I have lots of people have provided support, but it's still been, it's still pretty much drained my personal financial um resources and and the united church has been paying for lawyers you know and their time has been and money has been spent as well so it's just a it's just like this that it seems like such a waste of time and human resources yeah and the, if the outcome is predetermined you know seriously how can they keep someone in the church that they have decided is unsuitable for ministry <laughs> how can they do that it's I don't just know how time they can to call that. it so, it's time to call it and let you move on with your ministry yeah. and let west hill move on with its ministry it really feels like there needs to be some closure here and 
we need to do it with as much dignity as we possibly can. Yeah. And I, I can definitely add here that it's not your decision how it goes. And you're just, you know, sort of following along the the process that's been laid out for you, even as it twists and turns and changes. Um, but we'll we'll know more, I guess, in a couple of days uh, what uh, what the outcome is. But I'm certainly grateful. And I know uh, folks like John Shuck and uh, so many other progressive clergy uh, that are still in churches around North America and around the world are really, um, I mean, looking at this as a, I, I mean, the model's the wrong word, because I, I would hate for anyone to have to go through this the way you you are, but I think it does sort of point towards um, a kind of shift in progressive churches, and we'll see if uh, progressive churches want to, you know, continue to do their their thing yeah. or whether it's going to require groups like Oasis and Sunday assembly and other such groups to really actually start from scratch, uh, or whether any churches can make the mm -hmm. transition successfully. It's, it's, uh, looking increasingly, mm -hmm. uh, less likely that churches can make that transition successfully, but. And I mean, it could break it open. Yeah. I mean, it could break it open and churches, denominations may be able to make that move. I mean, who knows that might be what happened. And, and, my going down if that if that allows that to happen then that's great right like i that's personally i don't care about that right, right. I, I would be much happier to see those denominations move in directions that would be welcoming um and intentionally so like i'm not saying like lots of lots of denominations and congregations say we welcome everybody well, right. yeah, you do, but you create such an exclusive environment that nobody wants to be there. So, yeah, you can have atheists in there. But if you're still saying the Lord's Prayer, how does an atheist feel welcome if you're saying that in your service? So, yeah. of course, they're all welcome as long <laughs> as they look and sound and don't act like they're not you. So I think that's I think that if this was able to actually explode that that illusion that, you know, this language and the setup that we've got for drawing people into community and and the nurture that we give them which is couched in ancient language and symbol and ritual if we can blow that up and say no what we really knew, need to do is talk to people to be in front of them to be eye to eye to express what is concern concerning us and the community and to find our way toward right relationship whatever the cost you know, including the cost of all our hymnody and all our liturgies, you know, if that happens, I will celebrate that. Yeah. Even if we go down in the process, I will celebrate that. Well, thank you so much. I know you're busy with uh, people wanting to talk to you and um, the daily operation of your congregation and the other things you have going on in your life. So I don't want to keep you unnecessarily yeah, here, but I appreciate you. so much you taking a moment and giving us this update and uh, we will continue to cheer for you from around the world. And, and Ryan, I just want to say that I really appreciate how much you have done to continue to keep, you know, the ministry that you had alive and, and significant and meaningful for people who have been thrust outside of the church um, because of the exclusive nature of, you know, religion. And so you, continue to minister with integrity to that community. And I, I really appreciate that you do that. Yeah, it's good to be, it's good to be among like-hearted friends and it's, it's been a, a joy to, to do this with you as well. Well, that's Greta Vosper. 
appreciate her so much, uh, doing great work and a wonderful person and a lot of fun to hang out with. I hope someday maybe you get a chance to meet her. If you're in the Toronto area, definitely uh, attend her congregation if you get the chance. We'll find out more on Thursday whether she has more of this uh, scrutiny to endure or whether her congregation can begin to figure out what's next in their life together. As I said, if you missed the first conversation with Greta back at the very beginning of the Life After God podcast, I'd really recommend going back and listening to episode two, where Greta first told her story. It'll fill in a lot of the gaps and questions that you may have after listening to that update. Join me on Wednesday when I will bring you a conversation that I recently had with Mike McHargway, otherwise known on the internet as Science Mike, former evangelical Christian turned atheist turned Christian mystic. He'll explain how that works for him, and I'll ask some tough questions, perhaps tougher questions than I've ever asked of any guest on this show so far. So I hope you'll tune in on Wednesday and check that out. If you want to know more about Life After God, you can go to our website at lifeaftergod.org. Our Facebook page is very active at facebook.com slash ourlifeaftergod, or just search for Life After God. We're newly on Instagram, and we're going to be starting to tell uh, small stories from our community on Instagram. So follow us on social media. All the links are at our website, lifeaftergod.org. And if you can support this work uh, with a monthly contribution, our Patreon page is at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Your contribution of any size really helps keep this work going and expanding in the coming year. Well, that's it for me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God Podcast. 